Mana 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 this is social disgusting. Welcome to Social Disgusting, a podcast where my guests and I discuss our lives amidst the wanton hellscape in which we find ourselves. I'm Brandon, aka Brandon. Hope you're well. My guest is a comedian, writer, producer, and actor who has worked on shows like Billy on the Street, Medical Police, Big Mouth, and the upcoming Netflix adult animated LGBTQ series, Hugh Force Human Resources, as well as being in the throes of co-writing an adult comedy series for Audible. Please welcome Max Silvestri. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Brandon. You're so um, well-researched in your intro. I appreciated that. Yeah, just trying to get all the all, everything up to date. Would you like to be my manager? You seem great at being my advocate, and I've only known you for three minutes. That works great. You know, I'll only take 5%, so... Wow, I feel like right deal. there. Okay, good. It's official now. We're recording. Perfect. See, I'm definitely like glass half full. That's 5% more than I would have had. So <laughs> exactly. I'll take it. <laughs> That's what I've said. And I, I keep getting ignored by the people I tell that to. Just a young managerial upstart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Disrupting the system. You know, yes. right now the system is ready to be disrupted. <laughs> thank you again for being on. Like, I really appreciate your time. Um, Thank you for talking to me. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh. Well, before this, we were briefly we were talking about that. I said I'm from Little Rock, and you said you've been to Little Rock. And I know it's not like again a polished anecdote, but I'm curious, what were the circumstances? I uh, performed at a college in Little Rock on tour with uh, John Mulaney a couple years ago, and oh, okay. we got into Little Rock early enough that we took a day trip and got a bit of a tour of the Bill Clinton Library and. A lovely building, a lovely library. John and I have a lot of vivid experiences, uh, vivid memories of yeah. President Clinton, and he talks about it in his act. But um, sadly, I my my favorite memento from that trip, which is a mug I bought in the gift shop that said, I think it says, "95% of life is just hanging on," quoting <laughs> quoting President. William Jefferson Clinton, which I believe he said during the campaign or, you know, has, has okay. come from behind. But it is a funny thing to, you know, now with the hindsight of history to uh, to <laughs> yeah. sell. And it broke. Um, okay. So I've super glued it twice now because it's my favorite mug. And I think about Little Rock every time I drink yeah. it. Yeah. Very interesting metaphor, that breaking mug. I know. Bed. I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's kind of apropos. feels like a yeah. fitting end. They don't make enough uh, super glue to fix what's broken. I like the idea that that's like, that's the one they decided to commit to a mug. And they're like, look, the guy talked in long sentences. This is the shortest anecdote we can fit on a mug. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only thing that wasn't like a long, rambling, shaggy dog story. Um, <laughs> and everything else was just like, there was not a lot. I mean, I presume you've been there, but like a lot of the merch is pretty dry and reverential, as you would yeah. expect in a presidential libraries gift shop it's a lot of like you know clinton gore thumbs up you know presidential seal vibe and that was like the one that's i think also in script kind of meant to feel like it's his handwriting oh um, yeah, yeah so you're like oh, okay this is the one thing you're yeah they they're not really like outside of the box merch thinkers it's kind of like everything you would expect in the driest way it's like oh yeah that's there okay fair enough yep yeah if i if i wanted that this is where i could get it yeah exactly <laughs> Anyway, that's another industry you can disrupt. Okay, perfect. I mean, if I do that, then I, maybe I, I'll ask for 6%. But <laughs> I mean, fair enough. I guess I'll just have to figure out my rates at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, but... a, that's a problem for later. Cross that bridge. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. It's a good problem to have. This means more money for me. The uh, easy to ask, difficult to answer question just as a, a starting point. But how are you? 
I'm doing okay, you know, I'm healthy, I'm, uh, yeah, lucky in the scheme of things. I am staring at the same wall and computer screen I have been for, you know, it'll be one year a week from next Saturday. So, um, yeah, uh, I worked mostly in Zoom writing rooms last year, uh, which you know, very lucky to be working and fun to have the socialization of, uh, you know, talking to other writers, at least over Zoom. But it was sure. a lot of time in this chair staring at this screen. So, um, yeah, I'm ready to uh, I'm ready to get vaccinated and leave. But uh, I'm good. I'm good. Oh, that's good. But I know what you mean, though, because it's like, Obviously, talking to people, well, in this case, like as a disembodied voice, but also in Zoom where you can actually see something, that is one thing. But again, you're you're trying to, it's not natural, like not being in contact with people and kind of feeding off that mutual energy and just being in contact with them. It's just not natural. And I've really, I'd always knew that. But again, it's like you never had to really face that until this last year. And it's like, dear God, do I miss it? For sure. Yeah, it's really difficult to like forge connections with people even if you spend 40 hours a week on video with them um when you're not in that same space where you're not sharing a kitchen or you know going for walks or walking to the parking lot together it's like all those little it's it's the in-between moments I never would have guessed I would have missed and not just for working but it's like you know I keep in close touch with my good friends but what I miss is like the um twice a year at a party friends yes. the once a year at the grocery store how you doing we should get coffee but we won't like those exactly that exactly. wider network you know is is not in touch and i you know for my own health and with the election and everything i i took a break from social media for for two months um as i was trying to finish some work at the end of the year and it was great because <laughs> twitter's bad but yeah. i also was like oh this is like how i'm kind of keeping up to date on that wider network because i'm not seeing them you know once a year at this birthday party or this whatever so um i you know i just worked six months with a handful of people that i couldn't tell you how tall they were you know like i only know them in a little yeah. window yeah, and that's the I, biggest part of working with someone is <laughs> knowing how tall they are. You know, day one, you size everybody up, literally. You get out the measuring tape and you make that's a That's step on one, wall. yeah. Yeah, exactly. See where everybody stands, Let's literally. just get this out of the way. What heights are we dealing with? Let's do an average height. Let's figure this room out. And then, then we'll start with personality stuff. Yeah, let's let's all sit around the table in order of height. Um, let's shortest people get to order lunch first. Tallest <laughs> people get to leave for the day first. Um, yeah, you know, just normal stuff like that in a writing room. How tall are you and how tall do you want to be? I mean, let's yeah, exactly. just have fun with it. <laughs> yeah dress for the height you want um so yeah. i i wear uh, oversized clothes <laughs> yes how tall are you emotionally perfect <laughs> <laughs> i was curious about something that in college you majored in semiotics i did which uh and i'm reading this i don't know this off the top of my head explores the study of signs and symbols as a significant part of communications was that like pre-comedy or did you have like a career path in mind you know it 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 was comedy. I, I mean, semiotics, the major was not particularly funny, but it sure. was it was sort of the version of my college's like film major, kind of, you know, okay. like it, it, you know, it was a small enough school that like they didn't really have like a film department where you like learn how to, you know, 
light a scene or like do audio or ever work to actually make a film. So they have like a smaller budget, smaller scale, like quote film theory department, which is sort of what semiotics was. So it was a lot of like making, you know, short films with no budget, with free cameras that they had to use and no crews and talking about the idea behind the films rather than how well did you make this? Cause they didn't have the, the means to actually teach you to make it well, but it was almost like film theory type stuff. I guess, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it was a little more like visual arts than it was like film and that you tended to make slightly more like experimental stuff yeah, rather than focusing on like narrative or technique. Um, but it was, I, I majored in it mostly because they had the almost the least amount of requirements, you know, and you could kind of do a blend of like, I took art courses, I took a lot of theater stuff, I took creative writing, I I like knew I wanted to do comedy in like an interdisciplinary way, but there wasn't the major for it. So I was like, I'll take this major that only has like eight requirements. And then I can take every acting class, I can take, you know, independent studies and writing, and I have plenty of time, I was doing stand up in Boston at the time. So it was a bit of a, you know, uh, lazy man's choice but it kind of was like good prep for like youtube and everything that kind of was becoming big then in 2005 or whenever when i graduated this idea you know when i was in school like making a five minute film that looks like shit that's only a good idea and has three funny jokes with your friends was like not something that felt like it could ever lead to anything but that's then what you know web video and viral video stuff was, uh, especially at least in the late 2000s before like, I don't know, rich kids with nice cameras got access to it. So (laughs) it like taught me how to edit and how to like point the camera kind of in the right place, you know, so it was somewhat handy. But I knew I wanted to do comedy. Okay, well, that makes sense. I I just I mean, that's just my ignorance as to what even constitutes semiotics in college, you know, it was a lot. It was like, you know, uh, Foucault and like, you know, 20th century, like hoity toity theory stuff about I I mean one course I took in the department uh, was uh, called The Problem of Marriage looking at Middlemarch the novel by George Eliot and The Sopranos and comparing (laughs) the two so it it almost feels like a bit of a punchline making fun of what a super liberal arts college curriculum would be Uh, but it yeah you don't I don't think they even have a semiotics degree anymore they got rid of it it's like been renamed the closest equivalent is, um, I think it's what the guy in the Da Vinci Code <laughs> studies. I think <laughs> okay. in, the, in the in the in the books in the movie, he's like a like uh, he's like a symbologist, a symbologist, which is yeah. made up, and I think is a a different way of saying Robert Langdon. Is that his name? Robert Langdon. You're, okay. you're darn right. Okay. Um, and is a different way of saying. Uh, like semiotics. The idea of um, sometimes something means something else is how I would explain it to my parents as we all went deeper into debt. And they're like, what are you doing? Why are you not pre-law or pre-med? What is semiotics? And I'm like, well, you know how Faye Dunaway (laughs) wears a certain type of hat in Chinatown and you can interpret that, (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And they would tune out. I think Michael Showalter majored in that too. I think he, I think he did. Um, I actually, uh, he was a decade or so before my time, but when I was in college, and this will really date me and him, I uh, found him on Friendster, and oh, nice. I was like, "There's, I'm, there's no way this is the real Michael Showalter of Wet Hot American Summer in the state." And I uh, sent him a long message, being like, "Hi, I'm, a, I'm a big fan, and I'm in a improv group here, and 
I believe you were in it as well, and you'll probably never read this, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote back the longest, nicest thing, and uh, oh, we're, still, cool. we're still friends. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, as somebody who, I, you know, I watched this date when it was on, and went out American Summer, and kind of, you know, you're, you see these people that were, like, very formative when you were younger, and, and you follow what they've been doing, and to watch his career, he's a fantastic director. He is, yeah. It's so neat to watch him just you know, grow. And uh, I mean, he was always great, but just to do so many different things and to work with, you know, so many amazing people. And Wet Hot American Summer, even more than the state was like really formative for me. Um, We had like a campus TV channel that was like, didn't really have much content. It's not like there was like a local access vibe where kids were making shows. It was like mostly like news updates with just text on the screen. And then they would rerun the same movie 12 times a day uh, (laughs) for a month. And Wet Hot American Summer was that movie my, I think my freshman year. And I watched it so much and just it informed like so much of my, you know, be as silly as possible sensibility in my comedy. And um, yeah, even getting to work with David Wayne on Medical Police was just this kind of crazy, you know, pinch me moment of just like, wow, I can't believe that, you know, 18 years later or whatever, after seeing Wet Hot. It's a full circle you didn't even know was like possible. <laughs> like, oh, it's exactly. come around, like no no expectation of that. But, you know, thinking about it now, if you mentioned that with Wet Hot American Summer, for me, like my favorite, I guess maybe like film comedy is the comedy that's like committed silliness. That is something I, I deeply love, and I think that, I mean, obviously they do that in spades, and I always say it, but, like, is like, my favorite comedy. Oh, my God, I love MacGruber so much. It's unbelievably funny, and I'm so excited for the for the TV series they're going to be doing for Peacock, actually. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just, like, as a fan, just so excited that I get more of it. Absolutely, and I think um, the new uh, comedy that just came out, you know, Bar- uh, Barb and Star... Oh, my God. It's the closest outside of, like, Alan Partridge, Alpha Papa, that I've seen to that MacGruber energy. I agree. And it really was, like, I'm someone that maybe it's because I've spent so much time working in comedy or it's the thing I have to think about all day long. I tend to never want to wind down with comedy at night. It's not really what I choose to watch. It's kind of, I don't keep up with a lot of comedy shows. There's exceptions. But, you know, something about when that movie came out and just its vibe just being like, oh, this is... So I guess not what I, this does, doesn't, this isn't, of course, Bridesmaids 2. I don't know what this is. It was like, you know, a weekend with no movies out except a couple on demand things. And yeah, just truly it became like texting with friends like I was 19 again or whatever about lines, like truly had multiple threads going. That was just like quotes and just like crying, laughing. And I, and I, I have so few examples of like, that feeling with a comedy movie in my like adulthood MacGruber is maybe like the only other one that's just like oh this is just gunning it at what's the like silliest weirdest (laughs) thing it also felt like it came out of nowhere like I knew of it in that like you know oh they announced a thing and then a year and a half later whatever it comes out but it just felt this juxtaposition of like the gut punch of what is this and that it is full throttling this manic wild unto itself energy it was amazing it really was and i i also like i think as much as i love improv and think improv is very funny i think i i kind of got a little like burnt out on like a certain type of like studio comedy film having like a lot of takes that were like okay this is like you guys funny people being silly and you kept the most recent 
one and there's one or two scenes that are kind of like balls to the wall gross out not that I don't like gross stuff I wrote on Big Mouth for three years but um more just kind of like uh, a movie has to just be like and then you know he accidentally diarrheas in his wife's mouth and that's like the big oh my god scene or whatever and that there was something so light on its feet about Barb and Star where it was like so silly and committed to it but not it didn't feel tortured or like poured over cynical. of like yeah it wasn't cynical and it also didn't feel like exhausted where they were just like what's the funnier version of this we've got to do it yeah. again and go bigger it, it like even though I, everything I'd heard is that they you know spent years kind of getting this right and wanting to do it on their own terms. And it's a lot of old groundlings like characters and bits. It truly felt like it was written that morning joyfully and then done when they thought it was the funniest, you know, like it it, it had this feeling of just like, Oh my God, I I feel like nobody's stepping on my chest while I watch this. I'm just like, (laughs) I just am, am laughing along at how, you know, how hard you committed to, Things that just made you laugh, but not like 10 people sitting around being like, let's get 50 alternate versions of what's even better than this. Well, it also felt too like that in the world that they built, that for somebody to just break out in a song singing at a seagull made so much sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It worked. It's just like it would be weirder not to have this somehow, but everything about it was, I don't know. It felt like a magic trick. Like it felt like none of it should have worked, but it worked um, perfectly. Like, I I love it so much. I agree. And I, yeah, it also like, I mean, it. I remember like being so excited for Austin Powers in seventh grade and like, you know, buying tickets in advance to go see that, having like a sense that like, this is going to be so silly and up my alley, which it was. And Barb and Star had vibes like that. But it also, I think this is definitely like a credit to Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo's like how good they are at acting that it was like so rooted in human behavior even when it yeah. was like silly like just these are just like smart talented people who are really good at observing other humans and so much of the so many of the big laughs were you know versions of I don't know just like her being obsessed with how disgusting she looks and just being <laughs> yes. like you know no man will ever find me attractive and I'm fine with that and like these little things that are like oh it's so and the, like the two of them on a plane, not stopping talking for like eight hours, just like a thing that I've been seated in front of behind. It is real. It is like a mom in the Midwest. You know, it's all just it's it was perfect. And just these like things you could almost miss because it was like so played so straight of like, oh, we can't eat veal because it's too mean. So we'll have like the bald eagle sandwich or something, the baby bald <laughs> eagle sandwich, yeah. like just something like that of just like. It's almost like you blink and you can miss it, but it is yes. so perfectly specific. It's so good. I mean, at my com, I, I've always like, I've always enjoyed volume in comedy, and I mean like quantity, not um, yeah. decibel levels. But like I, even my stand up or you know stuff I write, it's like I'd rather have ten jokes that not everyone's going to hear all ten, but you might catch five on one pass and three on another, and it's just you know I I always. Like, I've got a short attention span, and I like when my, like, brain is maxed out with, like, things to look at and think about, and um, the movie was just so, you know, it, it like you said, blink, blink, and you miss it. I watched it again that first day, like, almost right after, which I don't, I don't ever do really for any movie, but I was like, there is so much happening, and honestly, it really is, like, so packed with jokes that you could be laughing at one and then miss another very easily, if totally. not multiple. Totally. Like, ah, uh, such a funny movie. 
I did want to ask you too that on John Gabris's, it feels weird to say John Gabris, but John Gabris. John Gabris. John Gabris. But I also don't know him, so to say Gabris feels overly familiar. You're allowed to call him Gabris. He would love that. Okay, good. On JG's podcast, uh, (laughs) Hi and Mighty, six years ago, you were talking about sandwiches, which um, some of my, I think pound for pound, like the best food thing out there. Oh, Um, yeah. And on it, you had said that your favorite, at the time at least, favorite sandwich was the po' boy. Is that the case still or no? What's your current favorite sandwich? You know, so yeah, I I think I talked a big talk about shrimp po' boys and the first one I'd had when I like visited New Orleans and maybe like 07 or something. Um, I, I think pound for pound, it's still like probably my favorite sandwich, but it's especially a fried shrimp po' boy is, is something that, you know, as I approach the tail end of my 30s is, you know, it's like a peanut butter milkshake. It's maybe once a year. I feel like I can fit it yeah. into my schedule and my health to handle it the way I want to. Like you really, only a young man is, or a uh, a true laborer is ever hungry enough to need a poor boy. Like to be someone who sits in a chair all day long, I don't care how many, you know, laps around the track that I take or little workout videos I do. I'm never hungry enough to need 14 inches of remoulade, fried shrimp, and bread. Uh, But I do it, and I love it. I mean, I would say that, I mean, is a patty melt a sandwich? That's a question for people. Is this another hot dog burger situation? I I feel like that's fair. You know, look, it's on sliced bread, which I think is, you know, an important distinguisher, and it's not a burger, but I think a burger is a sandwich. But yeah, wow, I haven't really thought about what my... You know what? I'll I'll commit to it. I'll say I haven't changed. It's still a fried shrimp oh boy. I had one not that long ago. Um, I had it in quarantine. I got takeout from Little Jewel of New Orleans, which is a place in Chinatown in L.A. That oh, that's uh, funny. That's the place. That's the place that I think the producer on High and Mighty told you that when you mentioned yes, it and then I went the and got it. It's like the only place I've, I've I've been to New Orleans once or twice since then and gotten them while I was there. And even went back to the place I talked about, the like first deli I went to, which I think is called Gus's or Guys. Um, okay. And my mom and I did a trip down there. And I was like, Mom, we have to walk four miles to this other neighborhood so that I can eat a sandwich that I had when I was 23. But yes, I, I've since discovered it's the only place to get uh, a good po' boy in LA. So thank you to that producer. I'm sorry that I can't remember your name right now, but um, you did a great thing for me and my waistline. <laughs> Uh, New Orleans is such a great city. My, my dad grew up there. Oh, really? So, yeah, I've been there uh, a decent amount. And I actually was, you know, I guess via quarantine, revisiting the food of New Orleans by rewatching the New Orleans episode of Somebody Feed Phil. It's a great episode. It's a great show. I've never watched it before, but he seems like a delightfully like affable guy. You know, I had never seen it before. I still haven't seen it, the, the yeah. show. And like kind of just without any real malice was like... This guy seems annoying. He 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 made more money than God, and he still kind of wants to be on TV, just getting to like have good meals and do the like, you know, most softball of food programming, which is like, ooh, I'm gonna eat the best taco, and then you go and eat the taco, and you're like, that's a great taco. And like, look, I love me some guys diners, drive-ins, and dives, but I yeah, it was just kind of like, oh, this is why does this keep being a thing? And then I have since found out that he is just considered one of the great menches in comedy and show business, just a very generous man and was incredibly good to his crew and staff on 
everybody loves Raymond and spread the wealth around and really took care of people in a way he didn't have to. Um, well, that's nice. So, you know, I like I said, I haven't seen the show, but I just want to tell you and your listeners that <laughs> he's more than just a nice goober that gets to eat great burgers <laughs> with famous people. He's also a genuinely kind guy. Well, that's really nice to hear. I mean, like genuinely nice to hear. But to your point, though, yeah, I was a little hesitant at first to watch it because I'm like, oh, wow, a guy who's so rich, he has nothing to worry about, but what am I going to eat for dinner? And he'll just use a production budget and go do that. And fair enough. But Look, it is a people are watching it and someone wants to pay for it. Then, yeah, you know. fair, I mean, again, fair enough. His energy is like very like palpable and infectious. And the food looks great, which is, again, a mixed... It's You watch it and I'm like, oh, I want to eat all those things, but I can't eat all those things. <laughs> but But it's nice to look at. Where did he eat in New Orleans? Do you remember? <clears throat> no, I don't. Okay, we can he, move on he, then. That's well. He he ate at one place that was in a neighborhood, and they did a lot of like, it's I guess in a classic like food way of like deconstructing different sandwiches, and it looks like unbelievable. I, I got to eat there, and I can't even tell you where it is, which is not helpful at all. But I do want to ask you that speaking of food, that you've hosted a couple of food shows. Three, three. Okay, three. Was it The Feed, Pressure Cooker, and Recipe for Deception? You got it. Wow, damn. Okay. What I was curious about, though, like, the, what it is to be a host of, of a show like these or shows like those feels uh, kind of chaotic. Is that the <laughs> case? Um, yes, that's a good way to put it. So one of the shows, The Feed, was more of a, it was kind of like a talk show vibe. It, it was modeled after Top Gear. And, in, and And for that one, I was just meant to be kind of what I am, which is like, a comedian with no real food bona fides beyond liking it. And I was there to kind of be, you know, the funny voice of the people taking the shit piss out of everything. But the other two were like genuinely like competition shows that I was hosting, you know, like four people or whatever facing off and money at stake. And hectic is a good way to put it. I mean, especially, you know, maybe it's different if you're doing... I can't imagine Top Chef is less stressful, but it's like at least you're you're working with pros over the course of many months. This was both these shows were like, you know, working with people who almost exclusively had never, you know, gotten to this place where they were like on TV competing for money. They were very nervous. They weren't good at being on TV or were or weren't experienced at it and the stakes were high, you know, for them. And so there's a lot of like managing the personalities and and managing the flow of the day and um recipe for deception also had like 45 different rules it was an incredibly complicated show that i almost still can't explain it was like <laughs> it was like chefs face off and they each have to cook a dish featuring a different secret ingredient the trick is they don't know their own secret ingredient they only know their other person's secret ingredient and they get clues at the beginning and then get like two opportunities in the half hour or whatever it was to like ask three questions about their ingredient, yes or no questions to their competitor. And the competitor answered it with two truths and a lie. And if they guessed which one the lie was, they got another clue. I mean, it was truly like, it was such a uh, uphill battle in terms of, getting all those words out in a way that was like funny and charming. Um, yeah. You know, and I, I've, I'm sure I was probably hired because I could, you know, speak quickly and make dry rules sound fun. Um, 
but it was also, I think, a really hard show to put together in editing because there was like, you know, even in a reality show that's just like, we're trying to cook here, you, you still have like what you call story beats where you're like telling a sort of simplified version of they're trying to make a shrimp po'boy because they think their secret ingredient is shrimp, but they're actually, it's actually marshmallow. So how are they going to adjust when they do find that out? Oh no, they're, they've done that, whatever. Like you're trying yeah. to, to boil down this hectic thing into what feels like a TV show where you're like pulling for one thing and you're like, oh, this guy's not going to do it. And so the show was just like so much voiceover done after the fact of okay. me just like, pretending like I was whispering in a corner, just like, okay, so they've gone over to the scallops because they think the lie was like, blah, blah, blah. And it was, you know, I, that was like a time, I think when like food TV and probably reality in general was meant to be a little, not snarky, but it was like a little meaner to be funny, you know, like, the American Idol vibe was still kind of like what people thought you had to do to on a competition show. Like, like have some edge to it, yeah. Have a little bit of edge or be like a little bit laughing at the people struggling here, which was never quite my style, but it's like what was going on then. And I think people didn't respond. All three of my shows did not work out and I left food media. But I think, you know, five years later or whatever, this kind of era of like gentle, silly like food and competition television starting with Bake Off came out. And now it's like those shows are like they're funny, but they're not like they're, you know, they're silly and they're light and kind. And I think people enjoy that pace. I I certainly do. You know, it's like the only shows I watch. I'm obsessed with Great Pottery Throwdown right now. It's like the only thing I watch. Uh, But I was about to start watching that. I've heard it's great. It's great. Um, Okay. If you like Bake Off, you will love this show. I think it's actually more heartwarming because as much as I love the charming amateur bakers of Bake Off, you also feel like, I don't know, bakers are appreciated by people in their communities. Like who wouldn't love to be, you know, married to or have a grandmother who's like an incredible baker. It's just like, thank you. You make me cupcakes. This rules. You're always practicing. There's something about pottery, which is also amateurish. That's like a little, it's a little like lonelier and less rewarded, you know, like these are people that have to like go rent time in a space and like have just kind of, it's more solitary, right? More solitary. And like, you're more likely to know less pottery friends or like people might like your free stuff, but they're also like, you know, what you make sculptures or what is this or whatever. And so the, um, the people on the show, and it's almost like the exact same format, just seem far more touched and delighted to be now getting appreciated and getting to meet a community of other potters in a way that's really like like heart rent. Like at times it's almost, there's like a lot of crying on the show more than there is on Bake Off in like a overwhelmed with a emotion way because it feels like a lot of people who maybe have not had a, a light shown on their passion before now getting, I'm going to start crying talking about it, but it's I like great. that a lot. That sounds great. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I want to watch that. I know you got to get out here in five minutes. I have one last question. Uh, I know that you are a fan of Tom Cruise. I love him so much. I am also a fan. I am as much like fascinated by him, almost like an anthropologist watching a human facsimile exist in the world. Sure. Uh, I guess my question is like, it feels like he is like determined to die on set. <laughs> and I feel like maybe maybe it'll culminate in him dying making this space movie that he's doing with Doug Lyman. 
Yeah. I mean, I read an article like a little bit ago about how basically it was all Doug Lyman asking, giving an update on the space film. And like the entire time he was just talking about all of the insurance it required yeah. to do it. Like, and they're like, yeah, you know, we had to talk about the movie, obviously, but I mean, none of it mattered if we didn't get over that insurance hump and we got, we finally got over it. Is he going to die on that movie? Well, it sounds like if he does die, they've got the insurance finally to cover it. I don't know how he's Lloyd's of London, you know, covered as an asset, but I do. I mean, I hope he doesn't, but I do I feel think- that if anyone was going to push it so close to the limit that it happens, it would be him. It would that'd be quite a way to go out. I will say is as, as much as you can like start to see his age a bit, you really can't. And I'm kind of he's, you know, Brad Pitt, for example, is someone who's like aging into his cragginess or his dadness well. And I think, you know, Tom Cruise, though, is Den- and Denzel's another example of like a movie star who like it's fun to watch him, you know, play parts where he groans as he sits up or he's can't quite keep <laughs> yes. up with, you know, the co-star or the villain. And you're like, yeah, I, I relate more to this, <laughs> like my back hurting <laughs> or just like being too tired to deal with this. Tom Cruise, though, that's not his energy he's putting into his film. So at some point, you know... It's going to rupture. I'm scared of that happening, but, you know, out an air shaft into the vacuum of space certainly seems like one of the, I don't know, certainly more romantic ways to go. Like a a space Viking funeral? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And if it's all on film, you know, (laughs) probably they're going to be up in space for like half a day and roll with 40 cameras to get whatever footage, you know, like I'm sure it's, I'm sure the space film is not like we're going to go move to the space station. Uh, Yeah. But... You know, he's a guy that, like, whatever he's doing, he practices it like crazy. I, I listen to, I spend a lot of, I don't listen to a ton of podcasts, but I spend a lot of quarantine listening to this Mission Impossible podcast called Light the Fuse. That's oh, by this um, film writer and filmmaker that are just genuinely huge Mission Impossible and Tom Cruise fans. And they just kind of, dissect the films but then have like you know these three-hour interviews with Christopher McQuarrie or Brad Bird or the guy that did the special effects or the masks for MI2 and it's been a really cool lesson on big budget filmmaking like how to make an action movie like what what considerations go in but also like you learn so much about how Tom Cruise works and one of the things I I think about often I learned from that podcast was that you know his whole thing of I do my own stunts which is true but he also like has an insane team of stunt people that are like his guys who basically figure out how to do the stunt perfectly like almost like ballet choreography where they're like okay if you're gonna jump from you know the 50th floor to the 40th floor in the Burj Khalifa or whatever like like you're going to push off with your left foot and you're going to catch here and it's going to be this, like they figure it out. They kind of like, this is not reducing anything that he's doing, but they like then train him for those exact moments. And then like a mimic or whatever, he then spends weeks working out to only strengthen those things he needs for that stunt. So like, it's, it's like the least risky, insane thing you can do. Kind of. Yes. It's like as much as it maybe the image he's putting across or what it looks like on camera is just like, I can't believe this movie star is insisting on being the one that like, you know, jumps to catch this truck one handed, like he's going to die. It's actually like as broken down into like the safest, tiniest parts as you could imagine. And then he's 
only practicing, you know, he's not just like a guy that's like, I bet I can make it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of like he's he's cre- made a science out of it of like, okay, I have four weeks until I have to ch- jump and catch the truck. I'm only going to work on my like, you know, my hamstrings and my like lats. And I'm going <laughs> to practice doing a 20 foot moving jump 1000 times until it's, you know, day of muscle sense. memory or whatever. So you know, I hope he brings, and I'm sure he will, that level of like precision. But it does feel like at least a couple of his stunt guys are going to die on the way. I don't know how you practice <laughs> for space. I yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, to your point, it's not like he's saying get a load of this, and then he and he jumps off like Big Ben or something. Right, right. But he's <laughs> not. He's not like a. I don't think he has this. a death wish. I genuinely think he's obsessed with. Audience. I think he's got an adrenaline rush too. Yes, for sure. But I think he's obsessed with creating audience pleasing spectacles and he knows that especially with the mission impossible movies like figured out this formula of like practical stunts that you can see my face in nobody else can do that at my level there's no there's no one even you know in my rearview mirror that can do that and i've like whether it's with christopher mccrory or all the different filmmakers he's like figure like what can i do to just do something no one ever no one's ever done before i think is fun and rad and i certainly appreciate it it's why i have three tom cruise related coffee table books on behind me right now on my <laughs> office table i love the series i it's what it's i mean at least like active series it's probably my favorite movie series out there right now same i think they're so good but this is your your time up i don't want to take too much more of it is there anything you want to point people toward before we wrap it up people can follow me on twitter and instagram and and find out about um you know this audible project that i've got coming out and the hopefully in the next year you'll be able to see both q force on netflix and human resources which is a big mouth spinoff that's coming i think probably next year awesome well thank you again this was great this was so fun it was nice to talk with you brandon Yes, it was great to talk to you. Thank you all for listening. Please take care. Please wear a mask or seven. Stay safe. Lead with empathy. And it's okay to not be okay. Okay, thanks. Bye.